126 of Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Arranged by Leonard Huxley. Third Part of Chapter 12. Awaiting the Crozier Party. Saturday, July 29th. Sunday, July 30th. Two quiet days, temperature low in the minus thirties, an occasional rush of wind lasting for but a few minutes. One of our best sledge-dogs, Julik, has disappeared. I'm afraid he's been set on by the others at some distant spot, and we shall see nothing more but his stiffened carcass when the light returns. Mears thinks the others would not have attacked him, and imagines he has fallen into the water in some seal-hole or crack. In either case, I'm afraid we must be resigned to another loss. It's an awful nuisance." Gran went to Cape Royds today. I asked him to report on the open water, and so he went on past the Cape. As far as I can gather, he got halfway to Cape Bird before he came to thin ice. For at least five or six miles past Cape Royds, the ice is old and covered with wind-swept snow. This is very unexpected. In the discovery first year, the ice continually broke back to the glacier tongue. In the second year, it must have gone out to Cape Royds very early in the spring if it did not go out in the winter and in the Nimrod year it was rarely fast beyond Cape Royds. It is very strange, especially as this has been the windiest year recorded so far. Simpson says the average has exceeded twenty miles per hour since the instruments were set up, and this figure has for comparison nine and twelve miles per hour for the two discovery years. There remains a possibility that we have chosen an especially wind-swept spot for our station. Yet I can scarcely believe that there is generally more wind here than at Hut Point. I was out for two hours this morning. It was amazingly pleasant to be able to see the inequalities of one's path, and the familiar landmarks bathed in violet light. An hour after noon the northern sky was intensely red. Monday, July 31st. But this is the last day of another month, and August means the sun. One begins to wonder what the Crozier Party is doing. It has been away five weeks. The ponies are getting buckish. Chinaman squeals and kicks in the stable, Nobby kicks without squealing, but with even more purpose. Last night he knocked down a part of his stall. The noise of these animals is rather trying at night. One imagines all sorts of dreadful things happening, but when the watchman visits the stables its occupants blink at him with a sleepy air, as though the disturbance could not possibly have been there. There was a glorious northern sky today. The horizon was clear, and the flood of red light illuminated the underside of the broken stratus clouds above producing very beautiful bands of violet light. Simpson predicts a blizzard within twenty-four hours. We are interested to watch results. Tuesday, August 1st. The month has opened with a very beautiful day. This morning I took a circuitous walk over our land estate, winding to and fro in gullies filled with smooth ice patches or loose sandy soil, with a twofold object. I thought I might find the remains of poor Julik. In this I was unsuccessful, but I wished further to test our new crampons, and with these I am immensely pleased. They possess every virtue in a footwear designed for marching over smooth ice, lightness, warmth, comfort, and ease in the putting on and off. The light was especially good today. The sun was directly reflected by a single twisted iridescent cloud in the north, a brilliant and most beautiful object. The air was still, and it was very pleasant to hear the crisp sounds of our workers abroad. The tones of voices, the swish of ski or the chipping of an ice-pick, carry two or three miles on such days. 
More than once to-day we could hear the notes of some blithe singer, happily signalling the coming of the spring and the sun. This afternoon, as I sit in the hut, I find it worthy of record that two telephones are in use, the one keeping time for Wright, who works at the transit instrument, the other bringing messages from Nelson at his ice-hole three-quarters of a mile away. This connection is made with a bare aluminum wire and earth return, and shows that we should have little difficulty in completing our circuit to Hut Point as contemplated. Account of the Winter Journey Wednesday, August 2nd. The Crozier Party returned last night after enduring for five weeks the hardest conditions on record. They looked more weather-worn than any one I have yet seen. Their faces were scarred and wrinkled, their eyes dull, their hands whitened and creased with the constant exposure to damp and cold, yet the scars of frostbite were very few, and this evil had never seriously assailed them. The main part of their afflictions arose, and very obviously arose, from sheer lack of sleep, and to-day after a night's rest our travellers are very different in appearance and mental capacity. The story of a very wonderful performance must be told by the actors. It is for me now to give but an outline of the journey, and to note more particularly the efforts of the strain which they have imposed on themselves, and the lessons which their experiences teach for our future guidance. Wilson is very thin, but this morning very much his keen, wiry self. Bowers is quite himself to-day. Cherry Gerard is slightly puffy in the face and still looks worn. It is evident that he has suffered most severely, but Wilson tells me that his spirit never wavered for a moment. Bowers has come through best, all things considered, and I believe he is the hardest traveller that ever undertook a polar journey, as well as one of the most undaunted. More by hint than direct statement I gather his value to the party, his untiring energy and the astonishing physique which enables him to continue to work under conditions which are absolutely paralyzing to others. Never was such a sturdy, active, undefeatable little man. So far as one can gather, the story of this journey in brief is much as follows. The party reached the barrier two days after leaving Cape Evans, still pulling their full load of two hundred and fifty pounds per man. The snow surface then changed completely and grew worse and worse as they advanced. For one day they struggled on as before, covering four miles, but from this onward they were forced to relay, and found the half-load heavier than the whole one had been on the sea-ice. Meanwhile the temperature had been falling, and now for more than a week the thermometer fell below negative sixty degrees. On one night the minimum showed negative seventy-one degrees, and on the next negative seventy-seven, one hundred and nine degrees of frost. Although in this truly fearful cold the air was comparatively still, every now and again little puffs of wind came eddying across the snow-plain with blighting effect. No civilized being has ever encountered such conditions before, with only a tent of thin canvas to rely on for shelter. We have been looking up the records to-day and find that Amundsen, on a journey to the North Magnetic Pole in March, encountered temperatures similar in degree, and recorded a minimum of negative seventy-nine degrees, but he was with Eskimos, who built him an igloo shelter nightly. He had a good measure of daylight. The temperatures given are probably unscreened from radiation, and finally he turned homeward and regained his ship after five days' absence. Our party went outward and remained absent for five weeks. It took the best part of a fortnight to cross the coldest region, and then, rounding Cape Mackey, they entered the windswept area. Blizzard followed blizzard, the sky was constantly overcast, and they staggered on in a light which was little better than complete darkness. Sometimes they found themselves high on the slopes of terror on the left side of their track, and sometimes diving into the pressure ridges on the right amidst crevasses and confusing ice disturbance. 
Reaching the foothills near Cape Crozier, they ascended eight hundred feet, then packed their belongings over a moraine ridge and started to build a hut. It took three days to build the stone walls and complete the roof, with the canvas brought for the purpose. Then at last they could attend to the object of the journey. The scant twilight at midday was so short that they must start in the dark and be prepared for the risk of missing their way and returning without light. On the first day in which they set forth under these conditions, it took them two hours to reach the pressure ridges, and to clamber over them roped together occupied nearly the same time. Finally they reached a place above the rookery where they could hear the birds squawking, but from which they were quite unable to find a way down. The poor light was failing and they returned to camp. Starting again on the following day, they wound their way through frightful ice disturbances under the high basalt cliffs. In places the rock overhung, and at one spot they had to creep through a small channel hollowed in the ice. At last they reached the sea ice, but now the light was so far spent they were obliged to rush everything. Instead of the two thousand or three thousand nesting birds which had been seen here in discovery days, they could now only count about a hundred. They hastily killed and skinned three to get blubber for their stove, and collecting six eggs, three of which alone survived, they dashed for camp. It is possible that the birds are deserting this rookery, but it is also possible that this early date found only a small minority of the birds which will be collected at a later one. The eggs, which have not yet been examined, should throw light on this point. Wilson observed yet another proof of the strength of the nursing instinct in these birds. In searching for eggs, both he and Bowers picked up rounded pieces of ice which these ridiculous creatures had been cherishing with fond hope. The light had failed entirely by the time the party were clear of the pressure ridges on their return, and it was only by good luck they regained their camp. That night a blizzard commenced, increasing in fury from moment to moment. They now found that the place chosen for the hut for shelter was worse than useless. They had far better have built in the open, for the fierce wind, instead of striking them directly, was deflected on to them in furious whirling gusts. Heavy blocks of snow and rock placed upon the roof were whirled away and the canvas ballooned up, tearing and straining at its securings. Its disappearance could only be a question of time. They had erected their tent with some valuables inside close to the hut. It had been well spread and more than amply secured with snow and boulders, but one terrific gust tore it up and whirled it away. Inside the hut they waited for the roof to vanish, wondering what they could do if it went, and vainly endeavoring to make it secure. After fourteen hours it went, as they were trying to pin down one corner. The smother of snow was on them, and they could only die for their sleeping bags with a gasp. Bowers put his head out once and said, "'We're all right,' in as near as ordinary tones as he could compass. The others replied, "'Yes, we're all right,' and all were silent for a night and half a day whilst the wind howled on. The snow entered every chink and crevice of the sleeping bags, and the occupants shivered and wondered how it all would end. This gale was the same, July 23rd, in which we registered our maximum wind force, and it seems probable that it fell on Cape Crozier even more violently than on us. The wind fell at noon the following day. The forlorn travelers crept from their icy nests, made shift to spread their floor-cloth overhead, and lit their primus. They tasted their first food for forty-eight hours, and began to plan a means to build a shelter on the homeward route. They decided that they must dig a large pit nightly and cover it as best they could with their floor-cloth. But now fortune befriended them. A search to the north revealed the tent lying amongst the boulders a quarter of a mile away, and strange to relate, practically uninjured, a fine testimonial for the material used in its construction. 
On the following day they started homeward, and immediately another blizzard fell on them, holding them prisoners for two days. By this time the miserable condition of their effects was beyond description. The sleeping bags were far too stiff to be rolled up. In fact, they were so hard frozen that attempts to bend them actually split the skins. The eider-down bags inside Wilson's and Cherry Gerard's reindeer covers served but to fitfully stop the gaps made by such rents. All socks, finesco, and mitts had long been coated with ice. Placed in breast pockets or inside vests at night, they did not even show signs of thawing, much less of drying. It sometimes took Cherry Gerard three-quarters of an hour to get into a sleeping bag, so flat did it freeze and so difficult was it to open. It is scarcely possible to realize the horrible discomforts of the forlorn travelers as they plodded back across the barrier, with the temperature again constantly below negative sixty degrees. In this fashion they reached Hut Point, and on the following night our home quarters. Wilson is disappointed at seeing so little of the penguins, but to me and to every one who has remained here the result of this effort is the appeal it makes to our imagination as one of the most gallant stories in polar history that men should wander forth in the depth of a polar night to face the most dismal cold and the fiercest gales in darkness is something new. That they should have persisted in this effort in spite of every adversity for five full weeks is heroic. It makes a tale for our generation which I hope may not be lost in the telling. Moreover, the material results are by no means despicable. We shall now know when that extraordinary bird the emperor penguin lays its eggs, and under what conditions, but even if our information remains meagre concerning its embryology, our party has shown the nature of the conditions which exist on the Great Barrier in winter. Hitherto we have only imagined their severity. Now we have proof, and a positive light is thrown on the local climatology of our strait. Experience of Sledging Rations and Equipment For our future sledge work several points have been most satisfactorily settled. The party went on very simple food ration in different and extreme proportions. They took pemmican, butter, biscuit, and tea only. After a short experience they found that Wilson, who had arranged for the greatest quantity of fat, had too much of it, and C.G., who had gone for more biscuit, had more than he could eat. A middle course was struck which gave a general proportion agreeable to all, and at the same time suited the total quantities of the various articles carried. In this way we have arrived at a simple and suitable ration for the inland plateau. The only change suggested is the addition of cocoa for the evening meal. The party contented themselves with hot water, deeming that tea might rob them of their slender chance of sleep. On sleeping bags little new can be said. The eider-down bag may be a useful addition for a short time on a spring journey, but they soon get iced up. Bowers did not use an eider-down bag throughout, and in some miraculous manner he managed to turn his reindeer bag two or three times during the journey. The following are the weights of sleeping bags before and after. Wilson, reindeer and eiderdown, starting weight, 17 pounds, final weight, 40 pounds. Bowers, reindeer only, starting weight, 17 pounds, final weight, 33 pounds. Cherry Gerard, reindeer and eiderdown, starting weight, 18 pounds, final weight, 45 pounds. This gives some idea of the ice collected. The double tent has been reported an immense success. It weighed about 35 pounds at starting and 60 pounds on return, the ice mainly collected on the inner tent. The crampons are much praised, except by Bowers, who has an eccentric attachment to our older form. We have discovered a hundred details of clothes, mitts, and footwear. There seems no solution to the difficulties which attach to these articles in extreme cold, 
all Wilson can say, speaking broadly, is, the gear is excellent, excellent. One continues to wonder as to the possibilities of fur clothing as made by the Eskimos, with a sneaking feeling that it may outclass our more civilized garb. For us this can only be a matter of speculation, as it would have been quite impossible to have obtained such articles. With the exception of this radically different alternative, I feel sure we are as near perfection as experience can direct. At any rate, we can now hold that our system of clothing has come through a severer test than any other, fur included. Effect of the journey. Wilson lost three and a half pounds, Bowers lost two and a half pounds, Cherry Gerard lost one pound. End of chapter 12